All right, so we've been working our way through the part of the Bible known as 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Uh, Kings and Chronicles cover the same stories, just from different perspectives. Some of it's word for word. And then some of it adds in a little different detail. It's kind of like, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all say the same story, but some of them add a little more detail. So we're going through Kings and Chronicles, and we're looking at some of the prophets as well that ministered in those days. For example, uh, we looked at Ahab, the king, and Elijah the prophet just a couple weeks ago. So that's kind of where we're at in the history of Israel. Just real quick summary, Israel had a civil war of sorts and divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom on the north is known as Israel, and the kingdom on the south is known as Judah. And we're following along. Right now, in Israel, the king's name is Ahab. He's the one that Elijah confronts time and time again. He's a horrible king. In the south, we have a new king named Jehoshaphat. He's a good king, but he did some stupid things, made some bad mistakes. He went into an alliance with Ahab, joined Israel with Judah in war, and that turned out to be a mess. And even worse, he had his son marry the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And so now the two kingdoms are united in a family. Ahab dies, and the next king in the north is Ahaziah. Ahaziah hates Elijah just as much as Ahab does. So Ahaziah decides he's going to have Elijah arrested. You know how I tell you I just don't understand people? He knows that Elijah was on the mountain, called down fire from heaven, and had 400 priests of Baal executed. And now he's going to go have him arrested? That's like going up against a tank with a BB gun and declaring war. It's just stupid. So Elijah's, he's just chilling one day, hanging out. And uh, the king says, go arrest him. Take 50 of your finest men and go arrest him. So they come up to the hill and they say, are you Elijah? He says, well, oh, are you the man of God? Well, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down and consume all of you and your 50. <laughs> so I'm guessing, you know, some witness or one of the guys that was a shield carrier or something survived and goes off to the king and says, you're not going to believe what just happened. And the king, being the brilliant man that he was, said, take 50 more and go again. Could you imagine being the guy who's got to lead the next 50? So the guy gets up to Elijah and says, Are you the man of God? Are you the guy we're looking for? And he says, If I am, may fire come down and consume you and your 50. Vroom. 50 more dead soldiers. Elijah's probably just sipping lemonade. And they go back to the king, whoever, and the king says, Take 50 more. So this guy goes up to Elijah and says, Please, I don't want to be here. Please don't kill us. It's not our fault. We're just following orders. Please. And Elijah doesn't kill him. And God says, hey, go with him. This is all of me. So Elijah goes and confronts the king and says, yeah, the Lord has sent me and you're going to die. And sure enough, the king is cursed and he dies. And great his story, huh? So Jehoshaphat is still king when the next king in Israel takes over and his name is Jehoram. Now, Jehoshaphat dies. He's the king of Judah. And his son, the one that married the woman from the north, Ahab's daughter, he becomes king, and his name's Jehoram. 
So now we have the king of Judah is Jehoram, the king of Israel is Jehoram, and the brothers-in-law. You know, it, it gets confusing when you read through history trying to figure out who people are, but we're doing pretty good with this history. You realize how many Henry VIII's there were? Or how many Pope John's there were? Or how many Cleopatra's there were? You know, when you go through history, it gets confusing. I can imagine in a thousand years, if we're not up in heaven having a wonderful time, that somebody's going to look back at American history and say, George Bush was president more than twice? I thought you can only have a George, well, a president can only run twice, but apparently they had a, a Bush running multiple times. We know it was George and George Jr., but in a thousand years, they're just going to see George Bush. So this history is nice. We've got Jehoram in the south and Jehoram in the north. Your Bible might also say for Jehoram, Joram. And it might call one Joram and the other Jehoram to try to help you differentiate the two. Same name, both of them. The king in the north and the king in the south are both evil. But it says this about the king in the north. 2 Kings 3, it says, Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother. This is where I want to stop. Because I've often heard people say this. Ah, all sin is sin. What they mean to imply is that there's no such thing as a worse or lesser sin. And today I'm going to disabuse you of that notion. Something that I think you know is right anyway. Of course some sins are worse than other sins. Don't you think stealing a candy bar is the exact same as murdering three people? Come on. So obviously some sins are worse than others, but because we know sin is bad, we just say, well, it's all bad. Well, yeah, it's all bad, but it's not all the same level of bad. And that passage of Scripture pings it for us. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as evil as his mom and dad, Jezebel and Ahab. Um, Jesus was talking about bad societies, and he said some are worse than others. Listen, Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So here's Jesus saying that Capernaum, as a society, as a community, is worse than Sodom. Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Sodom and Gomorrah were evil. They were destroyed by God. But Capernaum had the Son of God himself walking in their midst, and they didn't repent without excuse. And so in his mind, Capernaum is worse than Sodom. The Bible is pretty straightforward when you look at it. There are sins worse than other sins. Jesus was talking to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who had him executed. You realize Jesus would have never been executed if Pilate didn't say, execute him. So they're having a conversation, and listen to what Jesus says to Pilate. The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Greater than having Jesus executed? Yeah. Pilate was less evil than Judas Iscariot. So there are degrees of sin. There are greater sins. The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. There are greater sins. That doesn't mean, oh, well, it's just a little sin so I can do it. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. There are bigger sins. There are lesser sins. There are good deeds. There are better deeds. So there are 
greater sins, and then also in the afterlife, those greater sins result in various degrees of punishment. So the greater the sin, the greater the punishment in the afterlife. Jesus said this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You devour widows' houses, and for a show you make lengthy prayers. Therefore, you will be punished more severely. So some people will be punished less severely, and some people will be punished more severely in the afterlife. Here's another lesson he gave. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants him to do will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So Jesus says the more you know, the more you're accountable, and the harder the judgment will be on you. It says in one of the epistles, I don't remember which one, that teachers of the law, teachers of the word of God, are subject to a higher level of punishment and judgment because they should know more and they can influence more people. So there are degrees of punishment. And you know, this gives me, on, in one hand, it gives me a little bit of comfort because there's people I know and love who don't believe in the Lord who die and go to hell. Well, how can that give you comfort, Steve? <laughs> well, just knowing that they're not going to be as punished as bad as like Adolf Hitler, you know? But then on the other hand, I'm thinking, how can there be any good seats in hell? So I don't know. These, these things go through my mind. Maybe they go through yours too. You know, we have loved ones who die, and they weren't evil people. Like, Hitler's evil. But my grandma wasn't evil. So is it going to be the same? No, it's not. So is it going to be good for her? No. Hell's not good. But it's going to be a lot better for her than for, you know, bad people like Adolf Hitler, whatever that means. So there's degrees of punishment in the afterlife corresponding with the degrees of sin in our present life. But don't get me wrong. The greatest sin is rejecting Jesus. And everybody who goes to hell is guilty of that sin. So I don't know how to deal with that. It's trying to teach you what the Word says and how we wrestle with that in our own lives isn't always easy. That's similar to the question, are there degrees of, le are there levels of hell? In other words, is hell like, well, if you're just a little bad, you go to the first floor. And if you're a little more bad, you go to the second floor. And if you're really, really bad, you go to the third floor. What, what, what's, it, what's it like? Well, listen to what this passage of Scripture says. Second Peter. So the seniors group should be there in about another four or five years because I'm in the second chapter, and they're going real slow. <laughs> God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. That is not a great translation, because the word hell is not the word hell there in Greek. The Greek word there is Tartarus. It occurs one time in the Bible and one time only in this verse. Now, the word Tartarus was a very well-known word in the days of Peter. He wrote this, the days of Jesus. The Romans and the Greeks knew all about Tartarus. So the fact that he chose to use this word, it has an implication. It means something. Let me explain to you what Tartarus means. 
by the way, it should be translated best, cast them down to Tartarus. That's what the translation should read. Wikipedia says this about Tartarus. It's a deep, gloomy place, a pit or an abyss used as a dungeon of torment and suffering that resides beneath the underworld. So the basic concept of Tartarus, it's even lower than hell. You got hell up here, but for the really, really bad ones, you got Tartarus. Tartarus in Greek mythology is where the Titans were sent. So the humans are in Hades, but the Titans are in Tartarus. And you know, there's some biblical parallel here. The Bible says the demons that sinned were cast down to Tartarus. They say the Titans were sent to Tartarus. There are some who believe in Genesis chapter 4 through 6, those sons of gods were actually demigods or Titans, and they were sent to Tartarus. So Greek mythology and Roman mythology has close parallels to what the Bible teaches. The Bible says demons were sent to Tartarus. Greek mythology says the Titans were sent to Tartarus, very similar creatures. In Greek mythology, um, Hades is where most of the humans went. But Romans, especially in Roman uh, mythology, they would say Tartarus is where the demons went. Yeah, but humans are there too. So the worst humans went to Tartarus. And the average person who goes to the underworld goes to Hades. So in Greek mythology, in Roman mythology, you've got levels of hell. If you're not too bad, you're up at the top, top levels. But for the worst of the worst, the bad humans like Adolf Hitler, the Antichrist, and the demons, they're down in Tartarus. This isn't far off from what a lot of believers think the Bible teaches either. So it's not a bad concept. I know that Deuteronomy 32, 22 uses the words in the King James Version, lowest hell. So maybe there really are levels of hell. I mean, literal levels of hell. I'm not sure, but it makes sense. I am sure that there are degrees of punishment. So it would fit that there would be different places for those degrees, but who knows for sure. I do know this, though. At the final judgment, it says all the bad people... It says death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. So that would be another story for another day. But generally speaking, it seems like there, ha there are levels. Now, let's step away from hell... Let's go up to heaven. Are there levels of heaven? If there's levels of hell, it makes sense that there'd be levels of heaven, right? Listen to this passage of scripture that a lot of people think talks about levels of heaven. It's from 2 Corinthians. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. Well, there you go, Steve. It says the third heaven. That means there's three levels of heaven, and that's the third one right there. Well, hold your horses. It didn't say the third level of heaven. It said the third heaven. So if this is all we know, and it's not, but if this is all we know, then there's three heavens, not three levels of heaven. It says the third heaven, paradise. But when you read through the Bible, you quickly come to learn that they use the word heaven different than we use the word heaven. 
In our language today, heaven is the place where God lives. In the Bible, heaven is up there. So, in the Bible, the clouds are in the heavens. In the Bible, the sun and the moon are in the heavens. And in the Bible, God is in the heavens. So you've got three heavens, sure. You've got the sky, you've got space, and you've got the place we call heaven. That's the third heaven, the place we call heaven. So there's not three heavens. It's just the way the Bible uses it. Sky, space, and heaven. But are there degrees of that heaven? Well, before I go there, it says he was caught up to the third heaven to paradise. So heaven in the Bible is also called paradise. But in the book of Luke, paradise was under the earth. See, there was this rich, evil man and a poor, good man, and they both died. And it said the rich man went to Hades and the good man went to paradise. But between paradise and Hades, there was this huge chasm and the guy in Hades was suffering in flame, and the guy in paradise was not, but they were able to communicate. So, how does this all fit together? We can go to heaven if we believe in Jesus because he died for our sins. But that was 2,000 years ago. People lived on the planet before that. Where did they go? They couldn't go to heaven after they died because nobody had died for their sins yet. They couldn't have heaven because they couldn't have purification from sin. So where did they go? They went to a place called paradise. But it wasn't in heaven at that time. In the Old Testament, the primary word used for the place of the dead is Sheol. It's translated death, it's translated grave, it's translated hell, and a few other things. The pit, it's got all sorts of definitions. But the best definition for it is the place where dead people go. So in the Bible, when people died, they went to the place of the dead. But all the dead people didn't go to the same side. It was uh, like two states. You had the state of paradise and the state of Hades. Hades was more like Tucson. <laughs> in the summer, without water or shade. Paradise was more like, yeah, Flagstaff. You know? You had a place of suffering and misery, Tucson. <laughs> and you had a place with water and trees, paradise. Yes, I'm being silly. But it was the same state, Arizona, but they were nothing like each other. That's the idea. When Jesus died, he descended under the earth, the Bible says. And it says he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What's that mean, he led captivity captive? Those people down in paradise had been waiting ever since they died to be redeemed so they could go to heaven. As soon as Jesus died, he went right down there and got them, brought them up to heaven. That's why paradise at one point in Luke is under the earth, and in Corinthians now it's heaven because it was brought there. So now under the earth, the place of the dead is only Hades. There is no flagstaff anymore. It's just one state, state of misery and suffering. So, there are degrees of reward, but are there levels? Let me talk to you about degrees of reward. By the way, I don't think there are levels. There's no passage of Scripture that makes me think there are. That one passage that people always turn to that talk about the third heaven has nothing to do with levels, as I just pointed out. So all that's left is for me to deduce there are not levels of heaven. There's just one heaven, and we all go there. 
And that sounds godlike. We're all one in the Lord. We all go to the same place. We're unity. We're a body. It wouldn't make any sense to divide us in heaven. So I think that fits. But there will be degrees of reward in the afterlife. Jesus said this, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm coming, I will reward everybody, but in accordance with their works. So, Jesus is going to come, and I just picture, you know, we're going to turn in our timesheet. Whoa, out of 30 years, you called in sick 29 of them. What do you mean I called in sick? Well, I mean, you, you were CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I see that. That seemed to take all your time. But right towards the end of your life, you decided to get active in your church and in the soup kitchen. That year counts. The other 29? Sorry. I'm not going to pay you for that. You've already been paid. You worked for money. You got money. See, Jesus wants us to work for something better than money. We have to work for money, too. We have to eat. But money doesn't last long, and it doesn't take us far. And so we spend more of our time serving God, and we get the true reward. That's the way he looks at it. So he's going to come. He's going to look at your timesheet. Hmm. I see you went to church on occasion, but not very faithfully, and you didn't do anything there. You just showed up. You were a pew sitter. All right, 25% credit for that one. I'm coming quickly, and my, my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. That was Jesus. Here's how Paul puts it. Same guy who talked about the third heaven says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver, costly stones, gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. You know what happens when you take dirty gold and stick it in a fire? I'm watching this show on TV. How many of you watch it called Gold Rush? Any of you see it? Can I see some hands? Oh, just a few of you. I know it's got to be popular because it's still on TV. It's a fun show. It's about three families up in Alaska trying to strike it rich, doing whatever they can to find gold. And this kid took his gold dust to this guy who stuck it in this fire, in this pot thing, and it melted. And then he had to pour in junk, you know, ash and soda or something. And they explained why he did this, because the junk in the gold will bond to that junk and then it'll rise to the top and you can scoop it off and have pure gold. So you put gold in the fire, it heats it up and you can scoop off the junk. Fire reveals the quality of gold and makes the gold better. It was funny, he had a bar this big, about that thick, and it was worth like 50 grand. I was like, that is insane. No wonder these people are up in Alaska. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. So you throw gold into that smelter, and what you get out is better gold. You throw a piece of wood into that smelter or some straw, 
toast, just poof. It's like over 1,000 degrees, poof, gone, worthless, gone. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. We have already been judged for our sins. We're not going to be judged for our sins. When I say we, I mean followers of Jesus. When you stand before the Lord, it's not going to be for condemnation. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. Because it's already been done. It's already been paid for. You know, Jesus died on the cross to be judged for our sins. So we're not going to go to heaven and be judged again. We've already been judged, found guilty, and executed. And raised again. So it's all good. It's just a matter of reward now for those who follow Jesus. So three things before I send you home. We want to avoid hell. Even if there are better seats, I'm sure there's no good seat. Nobody needs to go there. I want to make sure none of us go there. And obviously we want to go to heaven. That would be the second thing. We want to avoid hell and go to heaven. But they go together. If you avoid hell, you're definitely going to heaven. If you're going to heaven, you're definitely avoiding hell. You can't have one without the other. Third thing is, we want to get the best rewards in heaven. I know, I often tell myself, I don't care. I just want to get there. <laughs> I don't really care about the reward. So don't pursue the reward. Pursue the reason for the reward. The reason is serving God with all our hearts. Let him worry about the reward. Timesheet. You want Jesus to look at your timesheet and go, man, really? After all I did for you? I died for you? I fed you? I clothed you? I made you an American. And this is what you did for me? Come here, let me give you a hug. I love you anyway. Or do you want to hear, whoa! Well done! Look, look at this, everybody! Straight A's! Look at that! Come on in! Have I got a place for you? It's up to us which one we get, you know? Don't worry about the reward. Just worry about pleasing the Lord who died for us. If he died for us, we can live for him. Nothing else matters. What does it mean to live for him? Let me see if I can find that passage of Scripture I stumbled across in my devotions the other day. Because I was sitting there reading. Somebody absconded with my Bible. I was sitting there reading. And it was after my sermon yesterday, so it must have been last night. And I was like, wow, I should have added this verse to my sermon. Okay, I'm going to remember to write this down so I don't forget. But Crystal and Christian were not there to remind me. You say, well, Steve, what book are you doing devotions in? Well, several. <laughs> so where did I find it? So I'm just going to sit here and see if I can find it. Jose, I think it was in 2 Peter. So I'm going to go over to 2 Peter and see if I can find that passage of Scripture. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's right in here somewhere. The passage talks about getting our reward. 
And it says, if we will do these things, we will never lack in the knowledge and this, that of our Lord and Savior. Does anybody know where that passage is offhand? So there is, there is some benefit to spending all those days in Peter. Second Peter 1. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to read this, even if it's not the passage, because it's so awesome. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. So we want to get into heaven with the greatest reward. I told you having a good job is not going to count. So what counts? Let me read it to you again. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Every effort. Make every effort to add goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. Don't quit. Hang in there. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, grow more and more and more. You will not be ineffective or unproductive. First Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 or 9. Thank you for helping me find it, Jose. Second Peter? Is that what I was just reading? Wow, that's messed up. Thank you. You know that many runners enter a race, and only one of them wins the prize. So run to win. So on Facebook a few weeks ago, I said, you know, I need a trophy. Has anybody got a trophy for a sermon prop? And I got a response. Before Mike was in the hospital, he found one for me. And we met up at Beyond Bread on Speedway and Wilmot so he could bring me the trophy. I haven't seen the trophy yet. I wanted a big trophy so you in the back could see it just as well as you in the front. So he's walking down the parking lot. He sees me and he goes like this to show me the trophy. Cars driving by. Congratulations! Congratulations! (laughs) That's pretty cool. I was given one request and one request only concerning this trophy. I don't want it back. Somebody gave it to Mike. Mike gave it to me. I guess it didn't last very long. It's got 2008 on it. 
already three years, four years, and nobody cares about it anymore. You know, back in the day, I imagine this might have been silver or at least steel. It's plastic. And what's the value of this thing? There's real no value to it. Mike experienced the value when he was walking down the parking lot. That was the value. Yay, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, but it's not my trophy. You know that many runners enter a race and only one of them wins the prize. So run to win. This is the Lord's admonition to you. The Christian life is a race. We're heading towards heaven. Run to win. The idea is to get to heaven. Jesus will make sure of that. The idea is to win. All those things I told you about with a huge reward. Athletes work hard to win a crown or a trophy that can't last. Not even four years, this one. We do it to win an eternal crown. If an athlete works that hard for a piece of junk, how hard should we work? Have you ever been in a race or in a sport team? You change your entire life. You change your diet, your sleeping habits. You change the way you spend your time. You spend the, you know, your free time watching, learning to improve. You practice. You go to practice. You hang out with the guys who care about practice. You eat, sleep, and drink the sport or the hobby because you want to win and you don't want to let your team down. And you want somebody in the parking lot to go, hey, congratulations. You give your whole life to it. The Apostle Paul is saying, if people do that for a trophy, what should we as servants of the living God be doing? We should be giving our eating and our sleeping and our time. We should be just as obsessed with serving God as people are today with the Patriots and the Giants. Just as obsessed? More obsessed! But it, I can only use them as our standard because they're the biggest fans. We need to be fans of God. Fanatics for God. Do crazy things for God. Give your money to serve God. Give your time to serve God. Talk to people about God. Make your whole life God-oriented. Because He made His whole life you-oriented. So run to win. Paul said, I don't run without a goal, and I don't box by beating my fists in the air. I beat or keep my body under control, and I make it my slave so I won't lose out. Paul says, I'm in the race, and I'm in it to win it. And he wants us to be the same. You're in the race, so be in it to win it. Don't be one of those people who gets into heaven with your coattails on fire. Be one of those people who gets into heaven and you're like, yeah, I did it. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, please give us a passion for serving you, for loving you, for growing in those great virtues that we just read about from Peter. Goodness and kindness and self-control and perseverance love. 
God, we, we, we need to make a living, but help us to be more concerned about serving you than we are with anything else. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Guide us and drive us. Give us a passion if we don't have it and the strength if we do. Help us to be in it to win it. For Jesus' sake and because of what he's did for us. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.